that you say You've been working on a bank holiday Now I see why you cry You've been watching your best days slipping by Hello and welcome to the Wheels of Wisdom podcast where I set off on two wheels to talk to interesting people about interesting things and take on a challenge or two uh, into the bargain. So one of the things I've been keen to do with the interviews was to find a perfect location where people feel comfortable and also somewhere new and exciting for me to go. And unfortunately, that's often outside. And when you are outside, there's a lot of external noises. And despite their new shiny microphone, some of the sound's not as perfect as I would like. But I hope you'll enjoy the, the content and forgive some of the early sound gremlins on with the show. Okay, so we're here for the very first inaugural podcast with the guinea pig, the man that loves to eat it as well as be it, Tom Kevill Davis, aka the hungry cyclist, who found fame but not yet fortune, but it's coming. Hopefully. On a, a wonderful cycle tour going from east coast of US all the way to Rio on his bicycle, which took you how many years? Two and a half. Two and a half years. So I remember reading a quote from Lance Armstrong that every endurance athlete is running away from something and uh, it reminds me of course that at the time we were actually working together so I have to assume that it was me, is, is that right? It was the final defeat at the table football table Christoph and uh, that sent me away. Now was I running away? Um, probably a little bit, yeah, or running towards something but I think there's certainly an element of something that drives you to get on a bicycle and cycle for a couple of years in strange lands I think you're certainly searching for something and I was 27 when I left and had never really travelled, had been on family holidays and things and was just very keen to see what else was out there and having got into cycling um, I was kind of enjoyed riding a bike just really, yeah I was really just keen, it's a great way to experience countries and cultures and once you do it once um, it's very hard to travel in any other way really because it, it's just so pure um, and your body's in good shape, your mind's in good shape. It's, it's, a, yeah, it's just a lovely way to, to get about. Yeah, because your wonderful little catchphrase was cycling the world in search of the perfect meal, yeah, which encapsulates yeah. it beautifully. And now you've been asked this question a few times, but you know, did you find the perfect meal? And I, I if ate, so, I, what was it? <laughs> yeah, I've ate a lot of perfect meals, and I mean, it's the, the joy of riding a bicycle is that you are always hungry. <laughs> and um, as my mum says, hunger makes the best gravy. Food, when you've been cycling a 40 kilo bicycle all day in tropical heat or in the mountains, is, you know, that, that meal at the end of the day becomes absolutely sacred. So I had numerous perfect meals, but one that stuck with me and which I cook a lot at home now is ceviche, which is the Latin American um, fish marinated in lime juice and then kind of seasoned with coriander and uh, chilies and various different things like that. Of course, now not only were you previously looking for the perfect meal, now you're actually you're trying to create them. The the inaugural ceviche supper club. Yeah. So what gave you the the inspiration? You realise that you, if you can ride a bicycle for two and a half years around the Americas and where else, and, and then kind of write a book about it, which is something I never thought I'd do, and get it published, anything becomes possible. But the ceviche supper club was really nicely came about because everyone asked me what was your perfect meal and ceviche is is always the answer and there's no way you can get it in london uh, until now until now you know it's a great way to 
get strange people into your house and, and cook for them. And I love cooking for people. I, I, it's something that I would take enormous pleasure out of, um, more than cycling, probably. One of the things that always strikes me about about you is you have this sort of endless optimism and enthusiasm <laughs> for life wow. which is a, a great quality or at least that's that's the bit that i see that's, that's i don't see the darkness that <laughs> lies behind no, it no of course and you seem oblivious to the fact that the, the western world is on the brink of collapse well, i think if it's on the, the brink of collapse everyone everyone should get out there and do what they love doing because you know <laughs> there are no dress rehearsals as it were try and remain optimistic life is always better when you're optimistic and if you Pull yourself out of having a job, which I did, working with you, at a very successful online advertising agency. Um, was. <laughs> it was. No, if you, I mean, if you pull yourself out of that routine and go, go out on your own, um, it's difficult. And it does have down moments, and it has moments when you think, what on earth am I doing? And yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult to make a living out of what you love, which is, which is strange. So there are down moments, but you... Invariably, cooking, getting on your bicycle, um, you know, coming out to beautiful places just like this in Richmond Park reminds you that, you know, from what I can see, the world doesn't seem to be on the brink of collapse. Yeah, but certainly days like this it helps you remind, helps yeah. remind you that the simple things in life are wonderful. So we should should point out that we are in what Tom considers looking at the best view in London, which is uh, overlooking a gorgeous lake on a beautiful bench in Richmond Park. And although it's January. And uh, when I looked at the weather this morning, I saw a big fat zero against the temperature. It's actually sunny and yeah. gorgeous. And we just uh, cycled through the park, had a, a little tour with Hungry Cyclist himself. And we're stuck, just awaiting to go, hopefully, for what will be a, a perfect meal, but we at least, a, at least a, a good a one. perfect meal from, from, from when I worked in, in Richmond yeah. years and years ago. There is a, a fish park, a quality fish park, uh, and it doesn't seem to change since about the 1950s. Uh, and it's full of kind of old ladies enjoying their Friday lunch special, and sweaty, so we, sweaty cyclists, and sweaty cyclists. So we will go there to refuel Richmond Park for me. Is this is a if it does all get a bit much, this is a place I come to just to unwind and remind yourself that engineered life to a point where you can come here on a, on a weekday and, and unwind. It's yeah, it's, it's a good reminder of why I do or try and do what I do. Yeah. And of course, for, for fans of YouTube, you should be able to just hear the, the gentle sounds of Benson <laughs> yeah, in the background is, as a hound. This is where it happens. Yeah, it's a hound dispatches the stags. Yeah, I think in years to come, there'll be cycle tours that come here and, and point out. <laughs> and this is where the famous YouTube sensation took place. But yeah, no, it's a beautiful park and you're probably hearing birds if you're listening to this. There's parakeets which live in the oak trees down on the rock. If you go and have a look, you can see, often see them nesting in there. Um, and you see a lot of stags and deer and... Yeah. Potting around, trying to get in on the action. Yeah. Um, for me, one of the the great days off is just going on a bicycle somewhere, getting lost in the countryside. It gives you some time to think and just process life and and stop, and as well as actually get a bit of exercise. Is how you deal really with with the loneliness of being on your own. And I remember you mentioned going to Southeast Asia where you don't speak the language, you've only got some basic forms of communication and yeah. you're there every day. I imagine sometimes you go for days without seeing many people and how you, you know, what, what keeps you going, what keeps driving you on? Yeah, I mean, that loneliness and solitude are two very similar things but two totally different things and 
I think the first question you asked was, you know, what was I, what was I running away from? What, why did I go on a trip? And I think one of the reasons I set off on the first trip was to just have a bit of time to myself and have a bit of solitude. And, there's, and there's, you know, it's wonderful just to have that time to kind of untie knots and think about things and see the world. But then on the flip side of that, on the flip side of the solitude, is is the crashing loneliness. And it, and you know, it, it does, it does exist, and more so in in foreign countries. You know, invariably. You're eating with other people, at least trying to. Uh, and food as a language is, is incredibly powerful. And I mean, one tip I'd certainly give to people is if you're going to another culture, learn some food words. Um, and I, I don't know if this is true, but I, I have a theory that food covers the most words in any vocabulary, the kind of subject of food, because it encompasses colour, it encompasses all the ingredients, it encompasses different kinds of cooking techniques and stuff. That's probably someone will probably prove me wrong. But yeah, the lo- yeah, loneliness is, is very it's very difficult and there are various different ways to deal with it. Reading is a great way to deal with it. Um, occupying yourself. I take a sketch pad whenever I go on a big trip and not only is that a great way to meet people, um, it's also a great way to to occupy yourself when you're feeling a bit lonely or a bit blue. So so for us so self-conscious Westerners that are plodding <laughs> plodding into a, an unknown village where you don't speak the language, I mean, how did you, how did you get over that first sort of awkwardness um, and kind of breaking the ice? And yeah, I mean, it, it, never, it never kind of loses its awkwardness, really. It very much depends what culture you're in. I mean, if you're in, in Colombia, for example, where the Latin culture is, is much more kind of open and vivacious and, you know, there's music everywhere, and then it's almost a point of... You know, finding the right person to kind of hang out with, and, and and so you can you know find a good place to eat or a good place to stay. But take that to northern Laos, where people don't see Westerners at all, um, and people rightly are very suspicious of Westerners. It's very then very very difficult um, to kind of yeah, a, not just break over the language barrier, but break over the kind of the suspicions and you know children are genuinely terrified on you. You know, big kind of blonde-haired, blue-eyed bloke <laughs> who's arrived on a bicycle covered yep. in bags and looking quite wild. Um, you can understand why they're a bit nervous for me or sketching. Ooh, the little dog's come to say hello. Um, painting or sketching for me is... the. It's just a great way. If you can sit down and start drawing, children are invariably attracted by that and they think that's... Sorry, that was Benton. He just came in to join us. Time. I was waiting for a shout. We got, we got shouted something. Benton! Yeah, always a great way to meet people is to, is to start drawing um, or painting because it's a universal kind of language. Um, and it's a great way because children love it. Children are absolutely intrigued by it. If you sit down in anywhere in the world and start sketching something, children will come and look at it and they are absolutely they think it's amazing they think that you've got a kind of magic pen because <laughs> what you're you're looking at a, a tree in their village and that tree is then being transcribed onto a bit of paper and you have to remember that in a lot of these villages pens and bits of paper are still quite rare commodities and the children will then start looking at you and you can let them have a go and all this kind of stuff and once the adults see that you're kind of okay with the children things open up and you know, often it takes time and patience, and uh, but invariably you end up having a fantastic meal with a family in a home, in a culture, and a memory that's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. And it's just having something like that that's kind of, that is universal. So, so we touched on the imminent collapse of Western civilization, yeah. which uh, 
we'll see you want to go back to work on Monday whether that's <laughs> happened or not but in the meantime it's, it's looking pretty nice in the countryside was um, some of the those lost skills which uh, we increasingly through technology no longer require at least if we have a good uh, 3G connection and things like navigation so when I go on my little jaunts in the in the countryside <laughs> I, I love getting I love job. getting lost right, right. but, but so, proving um, that you're not lost yeah like, but uh, knowing more or less yeah. I'll find my way because I'm a dot on an iPhone somewhere when I eventually get a connection means that no I don't worry about that but the thought of being on your own and in northern Laos and yeah. lost I mean what what how did how did you navigate yourself you just have a map yeah. and, and ask got, people or? I had a map and and what, the ones that you do come by are, are pretty inaccurate um, especially on the border with Burma where the Mekong borders Laos and Myanmar and Burma and yeah there I mean the roads they're getting washed out every year as well in the rainy season so a lot of them are just dirt paths and and so you're asking people and but again in a language that there, there are barriers and so you have different ways of working out whether you can whether what they're saying is true because again and I found this all over the world is a lot of people don't like to show that they don't know something so if you ask them or how far is it to this little village? You might say, is it 20 kilometres? And they'll nod. And then you'll ask the next person, and they'll say, it's 50 kilometres. And so there's no real way of of finding out. But when you... Yeah, cool. I mean, I don't know how you navigate, really. I mean, the compass is very useful, because it tells you if you're heading in the right direction, and you can use that on the map. But I don't use GPS. I don't use any of the fancy stuff. And I've never really been lost. And I think as long as you're on a path that other people have walked, or driven, you're going to end up somewhere. Um, yeah. and then from that somewhere you might better get them somewhere else and therefore you're not exactly lost sometimes you can't always reach your destination particularly if you don't know yeah. what that destination yeah, yeah. is and so I believe you, you brought your, your tent with you yes. wherever you yeah. went so, hammock. so what's, hammock what's the, what are the top tips for finding um, a good campsite and also because I understand in certain parts of Vietnam they're not necessarily yeah, that keen yeah, on you just pitching to, up it's illegal to camp in, in Vietnam wherever you stay you have to, you have to register with the local um, kind of com, you know, communist commissioner of that area. They don't like you camping, and I had a terrible time trying to camp in Vietnam, so much so that I kind of gave up camping there. But top tips for camping: if you're in a hot tropical country, take a hammock. Not only is it just it's just a much more kind of refreshing way to sleep. It's much more lightweight. It also means that you can sleep in the middle of the day, um, and often in these tropical countries, it's, it's so hot in the middle of the day. That you, it's just lovely to take two, three hours out and not be cycling under that fierce sun. For finding campsites, you get a nose for it. it when you start, it's, it's, it's difficult, and your mind asks, well, can I camp here, can't I camp here, is it safe? But once you get used to it, you get a very good nose and a very good eye for a camp spot. You find places that are out of sight, you find places that are dry, um, you find places that are perhaps quite near water so you can wash and swim. Um, you find areas where there's a bit of wood lying around so you can start a fire um, somewhere that you can lean your bike up against, possibly a tree I, I'm quite militant with it and I often if I'm camping will decide where I'm going to sleep an hour before it gets dark that's my rule, is I know you know what time it's going to get dark and so you get to 4 o'clock, you know it's dark at 5 so you say right, I will now stop at the next place that looks like a good camping spot and you start that look and invariably you end up somewhere. And I remember cycling with Amir, my Israeli friend, in uh, California. And uh, he used to get terribly panicked. He was at the beginning of a trip. And he'd go, 
where are we going to sleep? We must get to this town. We must get to this village. We must get here. There is a camping spot here. We must get here. And my answer to him was, you know, Amir, you will sleep somewhere. And I think if you can, if you're comfortable with that, that you will sleep somewhere because your body at some point will say, actually, you need to sleep now. And even if you curl up in a baseball dugout or, you know, in a petrol station or under a bridge, you will sleep somewhere. The secret is to training yourself to find those good spots, explore areas. Top tip, make sure you're out of sight. My best tip is, and I use this in Mexico a lot, and I used it in Brazil a lot, and Colombia, and all of Central America, is that most villages have a, have a small cafe or restaurant, and it's normally no more than you know, a, couple of, a couple of open fires and a, and, a, and a shelter, and it's for truckers and van drivers and bus drivers and people passing through. And if you can go to one of those and order a meal, and then just ask the invariably the lady who's running it and say, oh, is it okay if I just put my sleeping mat on the floor? I've never been turned away. And what's nice about that is you get to eat, you get to have a you know have a bottle of beer and then roll up and sleep on the floor of a restaurant. Um, and then people know where you are. Um, locals know where you are, you're safe. And going to sleep out of sight is all very well, but you sleep very lightly because you never know who's going to creep around the corner and any noise will wake you up. If you... If someone said you can sleep on the floor of my little restaurant or put your tent up in the garden, you're safe and you get that a much better night's sleep. So you should point out that we've got the, the perfect background noise yeah. for this, along with the, the, the tweets of birds and uh, the sound of Benton sm- sniffing my leg. We've also got the whir, gentle whir of the occasional yeah. bicycle as they come past. So, so I spent a lot of money hiring these extras. I hope you, hope you appreciate very it. very nice of you, Christy. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, actually, you're very privileged to see the bike that went from East Coast America to Rio. I don't know why you didn't do the return leg. It's very, uh, uh, very lazy of you. It was, yeah. And indeed, is this the one that cycled up the Mekong? Up the Mekong. The very same yeah. bike. It's been from Cairo to Jerusalem, all the way around northern Spain. Although that is that is built like a, an absolute tank, yeah. so there is a finite limit to the amount of gear that you can stack on there if you're actually going to make any progress whatsoever. <laughs> so I'm very curious to hear what your top tips were for, for packing and your essential items that, that essential you should bring. Items, gosh, yeah. It's endless debates within the, the slightly geeky cycle touring world about how you should pack and what you should take and what you shouldn't take. And I can guarantee you that you will, you will after about two weeks of cycling, send probably half of the stuff you've packed home with you <laughs> and realise that you don't need it. You can look at endless websites that will tell you of various gadgets and gizmos that you must have on a bicycle tour. You don't really need any of them. But my top top things I spoil myself a bit I think comfort is comfort is a is worth carrying you know you meet people who chop the handles off their toothbrushes and cut the sea out of maps and things because it saves them half a gram here or two grams there but I take it you know I take a sketch pad I take my paints um, I take a good camera I love photography I take a good cooking stove I have a Trangir which is a Swedish stove I take a selection of herbs and spices I take some olive oil or cooking oil in a little squeezy bottle. I take a hammock and a tent. Other essentials there, yeah, people will go on about various kind of clothes and um, high-performance jackets and jumpers and fleeces and windproof, sweatproof, waterproof. But the best way I've ever always found is if you're going to, say, a hot, if starting your tour in a very hot place, don't take much. And when you get to the cold place, buy some clothes where you are. Invariably, they're going to be a lot cheaper than buying them in, in the UK or in the Western world. For packing, you, you get to that campsite in the evening in the first couple of weeks. And I'd never really camped before in my life, before my trip around the Americas. And, you know, it would probably take you about an hour and a half 
you know, to get everything out, to get your tent up, to do this and do that. After about two months, it was about ten minutes, and you just become incredibly efficient about where things go, the order in which you need them, when you need them, what time of day you need them. Get to a camping space and have everything ready in ten minutes means that you can then lie on your back and read your book, or go for a swim, or do a bit of painting, if you're still wondering where the Alan key is. <laughs> just the guy wrote to your tent or whatever kind of gizmo it is it's incredibly frustrating you also don't you stop forgetting things I remember when I first started cycle touring I'd just leave gloves and sunglasses and hats on tables in cafes and stuff and then you cycle 40 miles the other way and then you think oh boom uh, and you never go back so to have a good packing system means you don't forget anything and it's wonderful to reward yourself when you think you've forgotten something but it's exactly where you know it is. You feel, you, feel, you feel like MacGyver. And did you bring kind of an essential kind of cycle maintenance kit? It was amusing on the way here that the, the famous bike, <laughs> the famous bike nearly, near the pedals nearly fell off for yes, one to right. a good Allen key, so you had to stop and borrow one. Just. And then later discover that they were actually underneath my, my saddle and my bike. So uh, that's, that's preparation for you. I think yeah. the habits are starting to they slip. Are starting to, everything's starting to slip. Yeah. Going soft, getting flabby. Well, your man is off to your, your own heart. It's Michel Roux Jr., the yeah, restauranter who's a, a great marathon runner. Yeah. That's his addiction. But I was reading a piece from him whereby he was saying that the more that he got into running, the more that his body started demanding certain types mm. of food yeah. and demanding that he avoided other types of food. So one of the things that I've noticed in my limited little commuting jaunts is that you know, if I have some processed meat or yeah. I don't know some sweets then you really feel it on your on your way home your body over time starts rejecting things so if something's extremely fatty you just don't feel like eating it yeah. if you're regularly exercising so what have you found are the, the kind of perfect fuels for you and um, things that you know your diet's adapted but, yeah, I mean, it, it depends where you are uh, as to the perfect the perfect fuel and I, I always just through the nature of what I do collecting recipes and journaling kind of food culture and photographing it and writing about it I try and eat what the locals are eating and if you're most of the time if you're in a developing country what people are eating is hard working food you know if you get to one of the kind of big metropolises of the world people are sitting at desks and they invariably then are eating food that isn't necessarily to make their body efficient um, it's just to you know, kind of keep them going through the day. Whereas if you if you eat in a village in the foothills of the Andes in Colombia, the food in that village you're pretty much guaranteed is if it, it's going to be good for people who are walking and herding cows up very steep mountains all day. That's probably quite good for cycling. Are there specific things that that I go for? Fruit. Always eat as much fruit as I can on a fruit gums, of course, and fruit gums. The ultimate tip. I do. I have to. I do slightly processed. I I normally uh, don't have a sweet tooth at (laughs) all. But when I start cycling, I develop an incredibly sweet tooth, and that is simply that my body is is requiring or demanding quick energy. The the secret is not to not to obey it all the time, but you know, to have a to have a packet of boiled sweets in your handlebar bag is is a great treat, and especially if you're in. I remember cycling across the Midwest of America. I had a particular bag of boiled sweets, and that it's quite a boring place to cycle. The Midwest kind of straight roads, 200 miles long, and I used to time myself and try and break the record on sucking these particular boiled sweets. That's how bored I was. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and little little treats like that. I mean, 
you know, I, I, I love a beer at the end of the evening, which I know a lot of purist cyclists would disagree with, but, you know, huge amount of calories, it's not sugary, sweet, nasty pop, which in a lot of countries that's the only other alternative. And in a lot of these hot countries, the beer isn't that alcoholic, and it does, you know, take the edge off the day. It's a little reward, a little treat, something to look forward to. And it helps your muscles relax and probably means you're going to get a better night's sleep in your tent. There you go. So if you take nothing else from this podcast, get Tom's top tip, which is to drink beer of an evening. Drink beer and then sleep in your hammock. Sleep yeah, in yeah, your yeah. hammock. Says the hungry cyclist. <laughs> now, I get, I get quite a lot of... I get teased regularly by other friends of mine in the cycle touring community, but I'm very happy the way I do it. For me, it's about enjoyment and, you know, if you work hard cycling all day there should be a little reward at the end of it you know why sit around eating bird seeds at the end of the day in energy bars yeah. when, when you can eat fish tacos and wonderful grilled meats and all this kind of, stuff. of all the things to tease you about probably drinking beer is your is the least of your vices so uh... <laughs> <laughs> you told me speaking to my mother <laughs> yes she'll be editing the podcast yeah yeah oh god so i'd say to anyone if you are planning a trip whether it's a week or two months or two years um, take it take something that you love with you um, whether it be music or architecture or poetry or fishing whatever um, you know t- take that with you because it, it gives it structure and it gives you a reason um, and it also means that when you come back it, it gives what you've done a bit of context and I think that for peace of mind is really really important and drink more beer Drink more beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, beer for cycling. If you've been on a long cycle tour, if you've cycled 80 miles, the joy of it is you can pretty much eat whatever you want <laughs> and your body will deal with it. You can have a famous parry breast. You could have Which a have you seen the contents breast. of yeah, that? Yeah, That's yeah. not my, something my, to my take. Fa- my favourite pastry. Unless you've done the trip. Unless you've done the parry breast. Parry. That's it's there and back, isn't it? Um, if people are wondering what parry breast is, it's a, it's a, it's a cake from France. Um, which was designed by a patissier on the route of the Paris-Brest bicycle race, uh, which is the first bicycle race, kind of official bicycle race ever. I think it was inaugurated about 1870. And he had all these kind of mad cyclists on bone-shaking bicycles going past his door twice. And so he invented a cake that, would, that looked like a bicycle wheel, and they're delicious. It's filled with... Pralines? It's filled with it's a it's a shoe pastry in a kind of disc like a donut. That's the wheel. Um, it's filled with uh, it's filled with a kind of praline cream, which is pumped in rather like air, a very airy kind of whipped up cream. That's the air, and then it's um it's almonds are put around the edge. That's meant to be the tread of the tire, and then it's dusted with. I think chocolate, and that's meant to be the dirt of the road. Fantastic. Well, on that bombshell, all this talk is actually making me really hungry, and it's about half past one, and <laughs> I think it's I time for some lunch. The chip shop. So, yeah, so yeah. we'll see. We may not find a Paris Brest, but we will have, uh, we'll have some allegedly the best fish and chips in London. I think we it's will one see. Of the best, certainly, yeah. So, uh, fish bar in yeah. And maybe a pint. Maybe a pint, <laughs> just to see it off, just to, just to get us home. So, thanks again, Tom. Thank you and, very much. Uh, let's hit the road. Yeah. So if you're enjoying the music in this podcast, uh, perhaps unfortunately more than the content itself, then that's thank you to a certain Marcus Hillier who very generously agreed to let me use his music uh, for free at at this point during the podcast. Although 
await with uh, interest a letter from his lawyers once this goes out. And indeed, maybe we'll meet him later on in the series of podcasts. But for now, just enjoy Marathons by Marcus Hillier. Tell 